day like today, I want to make sure I thank those people that did the plowing and the shoveling and uh, getting the building warmed up long before we got here. I know Jake Edgel plays a big part in that, so thank you all who did that. I'm very grateful. Getting inside of your head is a long-time tactic of our enemies. I know whenever I was working for the Navy, I mentioned last week that they had this thing they did called psychological operations where they would perform maneuvers designed to intimidate our enemies. And that is not just restricted to the battlefield, at least not the military battlefield, because as it stands, football coaches know how to do this as well. Newt Rockne, you may know the name. He was the longtime coach at Notre Dame. He was facing the University of South Southern California Trojans. And they were undefeated at the time. And he really didn't know if his team was going to be able to beat them. So he had an idea. He drove through the town of South Bend, Indiana. And he found the biggest guys he could find. His standard was they had to be at least six foot five. They had to weigh at least 300 pounds. And he, went, he found football uniforms for them. And he wanted them to be the very first men that the Trojans saw as they were running out onto the field. And he did it. He pulled it off. I don't think the same rules were in play. There weren't the limited roster rules that there are now. But when those guys lined up, Southern California, the team, they forgot about their talent. They forgot about their undefeated record. And the only thing they mentally prepared them for themselves for was the beating that they were about to take. That was what was in their heads. And not a single one of those specially recruited men played during the game, but just their presence knocked Southern Cal's concentration off balance. And Newt Rockney won that day. His trick played out, and it worked. And those players were intimidated before they ever even played the first play. It was extremely effective, and we have an enemy doing the same thing to us. Satan very much wants to get inside your head. He wants you to believe that he's so much bigger and more powerful than he actually is. He wants you intimidated before you ever put your feet on the ground in the morning. He wants to demoralize us, make us afraid, make us doubt. And he is a horrible and powerful enemy. But he's not as big as we may think he is. In John 10.10, Christ said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We're commanded to be joyous Christians. Not only that, but as we looked at the very beginning, before we started this series on joy, we looked at Nehemiah 8, and that prophet Nehemiah told those weeping, mournful Israelites, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord, this spiritual buoyancy that you and I are commanded to have. That we can get through this life and God does not intend us to live lives of despair. He wants us to live lives of joy. This morning I want to talk about how do I keep Satan from stealing my joy. We're in this series called Fortified, fortifying our hearts with the joy of the Lord. It's a very important as we head into a new year, and my goodness, there's enough tragedy in our world to go around for uh, three or four lifetimes, isn't there? Every time I turn on the news, 
There's a new shooting, and it's happening so fast that I was telling Kevin this morning, it doesn't even feel like news anymore. It's just becoming commonplace. There's a thief working against us. I want to talk about this morning these three, three temptations. Three temptations we can give into that can steal our joy. This is a, a part two of the sermon uh, last week. And in each case, I want to talk about the alternative response to the temptation. Much of this is what I let my heart and mind meditate on through the week. Uh, instead of staying to read, I'll be going through different passages. There's several, you'll see them in the bulletin that we'll be touching on as we, as we talk through these three temptations today. I want to look at this first temptation we find in the Gospel of Matthew uh, in verses 29 and 30 of Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14, verses 29 and 30. It's a story that uh, many of you are probably familiar with. Jesus was teaching on the shores of Galilee, and there were many crowds around him. And before the crowds had left him, he told his disciples, just get on a boat and go ahead and head out on the Sea of Galilee. He wanted to take some time and, and pray. And they fed about fifteen to 20,000 people that day, 5,000 men, but the entire families and Day turned into evening. The disciples go out on that boat in the evening. And not long after that, those disciples find themselves out in a boat alone in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Now, you got to remember, there would have been no real lights on the shores to speak of. Someone may have a fire or something, but that would be nothing like what we would think of as lights on a, a shore or, or beach. And then the text says the wind and waves, they they picked up, and it was dark. And the disciples look out, and who do they see walking on the water towards them? They see Christ walking out on the water. Now, they thought it was a ghost at first. They were terrified. There are actually rumors back in that day of a ghost on the Sea of Galilee. And then he revealed his identity, and Peter asked Jesus. He said, Jesus, order me to come out onto the water with you. And then we pick up in verse 29. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now what happens here? Now you've got to give Peter props. I mean, he had the faith to get out of the boat, right? The rest of the guys were just sitting there. And he had this idea, no, 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 I want to walk out on the water and meet Jesus out on the water. So we don't want to look over that. This is a, a confidence in, in God, and that confidence was going to be absolutely necessary. So in one moment, Peter became a really good example, but then at the same time, he also became a, a very bad one, just in a few moments. So he's doing well, he gets out of the boat, but then he gets concerned. Because he sees those waves and that wind. And he got really concerned about the circumstances that he found himself in. His faith starts to teeter. And all that faith and exuberance he had when he got out of the boat changed very, very quickly. And just like Peter... We're going to find ourselves in these moments. One moment where our faith is strong, where we know God is present. We feel like we can do anything. But then the circumstances of life come, don't they? Things get difficult. And then we just 
sometimes we just want to escape for a while, don't we? I mean, Jesus, I, rather, Peter didn't have anywhere to escape here. It was like, Jesus saved me or I'm sunk. But we want to run off. And it's very easy for us to become distracted with our life circumstances. That's our first temptation. Don't get distracted from daily discipline. Don't get distracted each day from what we must do. From keeping our eyes on Christ. And distraction is a very interesting word. It literally means to uh, be dragged away or even torn apart. And our appetite for distraction in our day, uh, it, it seems to be never-ending. And there's things that daily we must do. We must be praying daily. We must be in the Word of God daily, letting our mind go there every single day. But see, we've got this infinite appetite for distraction. There's a, there's a writer and speaker by the name of Andy Crouch. And he, he was uh, speaking to adults on technology. And he, he frequently hears from, from parents, and when, when they want him to come and speak on technology, they always assume, okay, he's going to teach us how to set limits on our kids and how they use their cell phones and, and the amount of time they spend in front of screens. He'll help us with that. And he's got some amazing research, search, though, that shows something surprising. Because what he also does is he goes out and he asks kids, what do you think about your parents' use of technology? And he and his daughter, they asked 13 to 21-year-olds, year, if you could change one thing in your relationship with your parents, what would it be? And it was one answer that came up more than any other. The teenagers and all the uh, young adults said this, I wish my parents would spend less time on their devices and more time talking to me. That's what the children said. And again, Crouch concludes, he said, issues of screen time and the use of devices is not a kid's issue. He said, it is a human issue. Now, I read that. You know, I like to find these illustrations and stories. And part of me didn't believe it. So I dug a little further. And this was interesting. The Journal of Pediatrics, they, just, they published a new study about how mobile devices are disrupting family relationships. And researchers, they spent uh, time observing 55 families dining in Boston-area fast food restaurants. And guess who the biggest culprit was of being on their devices too much? You got it. It wasn't the kids. The parents. It said this, adults who were typing and swiping were more fully focused on their screens than those who were making phone calls. And the ones paying most attention to their children were, of course, not doing any of those things. And here's the other no-brainer out of that study. Children can feel hurt by this lack of attention. We have an infinite appetite for distraction. Most of us as kids never, I dreamed about having a smartphone that I could sit at church service and watch Indiana Jones. <laughs> I remember those days. And those days are here. And we've got this thing in our pocket that's always screaming at us. And yes, there are Bible verses on there too. Listen, Satan wants nothing more than to draw your attention away from God and sink you down in those waves and keep you down there. And drown you if he can. 
Yeah, life gets tough, but be careful where you decide to seek your escape. We sang about it this morning, about our souls. Jesus knows he controls the wind and the waves. Don't get distracted. Instead, stay disciplined. Stay disciplined. Don't ever find yourself laying your head down at night having not taken the time for prayer that day. If you do, pray then. Start thanking God. I I try to make it by discipline. The first thing in the morning I do is I start thanking God. The last thing I do, I, I fall asleep thanking God. And sandwich that day. Bookend your day thanking God for the good stuff, the tough stuff. Stay disciplined. Set timers. Uh, it doesn't mean you never get on your face, but set a timer. You know, you can, I can I, if I'll, I'll say it now. Hey, Siri, set a timer for 10 minutes. There's already one set. <laughs> oh, it's already one set. It's just that easy, though. You can tell your phone, set a timer, it'll do it. So set timers, be careful, stay disciplined, make sure you're praying. Make sure you're in the Word of God. That's our first temptation, how to overcome it. Then we find the next one in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses 26 through 31. It's 4, Ephesians 4, 26 through 31. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as it is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This passage of Ephesians comes in the middle of a section where Paul is talking about the behavior of the new man. Having now received Christ as your Savior, this is how you should then act. And look at these first two verses. It says, be angry and do not sin. Now, notice it doesn't say, don't be angry here in the beginning. But it does say there's a time limit on your anger. And Paul's making this point that it shouldn't be carried over to the next day. It should be dealt with quickly. And I like what one commentator said. It is to be but a brief emotion, slowly excited, and very soon dismissed. And why? Verse 28. uh, It says lingering. You know, clearly lingering on anger, it says, gives the devil an opportunity. In some versions, it says a foothold. And and see, when, when anger lingers, guess what? It gets harder and harder to control that anger. And then that anger can start to control you. And you can get consumed. There was something uh, Aristotle said back in the day about the complications of anger and, and what ensues. He said, anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, this is not easy. It's not. Jesus was not without anger at times, but obviously he did this perfectly. It didn't control him. And do you see that need to control? And and Satan would would love for you to be consumed with anger toward a person. See that anger become hate. 
And to see that hate turn into fantasies of violence. And to see the violence happen, maybe even murder. If he could just keep you in that place long enough. There's a, by the way, a message. If you've ever read the book Moby Dick, if you don't know that story, it's about a captain named Ahab and a giant white whale. And the whale took one of Captain Ahab's legs. And he had a crewmate named Starbuck, his first mate. He was the only one who dared to answer the question the captain cries out. And he said, oh, Ahab, not too late, is it? Even now, the third day. Now, see, what had happened is Ahab had set out on, he'd set out on this, uh, this maddening quest to kill the whale that took his leg. But the men could start to see he's going to kill all of us in his pursuit of trying to kill this whale. And his first mate says, would you desist? He said, look, Moby Dick seeks you not. It is you, you that madly seek him. But it was too late. Ahab ignored every danger, and in the end, the ship is lost, the crew, save one, is gone. Ahab loses his quest, and he loses his life. And see, this is this dark path. And by the way, the white whale, it, just, uh, it was just a symbol of the unknown that happens in life. But that's the dark path that, that, that hatred can, can take us down, that we think revenge and hatred will bring us salvation but they don't, and it brings us spiritual death, if not literal death, if we hang on to this anger. And the scriptures say to put away bitterness and wrath. So don't hold a grudge. Don't hold a grudge against somebody. Letting that bitterness and that anger just sit there in your, in your hearts and turning into hatred. And I came across a, a letter a man wrote to his neighbor re- reflecting uh, a grudge. He said, Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years, and when you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. And when your dog went to the bathroom all over my lawn, you laughed. He said, I could go on, but I'm not one to hold grudges. He said, So I'm writing this letter to let you know that your house is on fire. Cordially, Bob. In the remainder of this passage, Paul keeps telling the believers, he says, don't steal, work hard, use your speech to build others up, don't tear them down. In verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't live in a way contrary to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's helping you to guard your speech. Then in verses 31 and 32, he lists these six vices to get rid of, then three virtues to live. What are the sins that grieve the Holy Spirit? He starts with bitterness. That's when we harbor uh, resentment. That's when we keep records of wrongs. And a good prayer at times may be that uh, God would teach us to forget. That could be a good prayer. God, help me just to forget that. Then wrath and anger or rage. These are outbursts of uncontrolled frustration. That's the difference with this anger and the anger that's mentioned before. This is an uncontrolled rage. Then clamor is a shouting and yelling and screaming. Then slander, those are words that hurt another person, especially if you really want to just assassinate their character. You start saying things about them. Then malice is ill will towards another person or people. It's it's referred to as congealed hatred. That is malice. And anger can lead to all of these. Instead, look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Instead of holding this grudge against someone, instead forgive others like you were forgiven. Forgive like you were forgiven. There's a great series of books called the Peacemaker Books. And uh, they, they have a whole bunch of lessons that I think they do an outstanding job of explaining what is and isn't, uh, what forgiveness is and what it isn't. It's not a feeling. It's about making a decision. Forgiveness is more about an act of the will. It's not about forgetting. I think it's good prayer to forget. I have a very hard time doing that. It's interesting, in Isaiah 43, 25, when God said, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And listen to what he says, I will not remember your sins. He doesn't say, I cannot remember your sins. He said, I will not remember your sins. It's a choice. Choosing not to focus on the offense. It's saying, we both know that what you did is wrong, but since God is forgiving me, I am forgiving you. I think a great definition of forgiveness is to release a person that should be from the punishment or penalty he or she deserves. It's from these two Greek words, afiemi and karizomai. And again, Satan would like nothing more to keep you raging, to miss the joy that's available because of because of something or someone you will not forgive. So, again, number one, stay disciplined. Two, don't get distracted. And then forgive and, and don't hold a grudge. Then we find our third temptation, 2 Corinthians 2.11 and Revelation 12.10. We'll start in 2 Corinthians 2. And I actually want to back up to verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 2. It says, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether... You are obedient to everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul, in this letter to the Corinthians, he's pointing out the action. There was a certain man at Corinth. And whether or not he was a member of the church, we don't know, or if he was just someone visiting, but Paul did regard him as a Christian. What he did to cause the grief to that community is also not known. But after this man repented, Paul urged the church back in verse 8, he said, reaffirm your love for him. And then Paul notes in verse 9, and their love and devotion to him would be affirmed by their being obedient to Paul's directive. So he encouraged the church, stand in, stand in solidarity with me. I have forgiven this man. So ought you to forgive this man. And why? Verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan is a schemer. And if he can tempt people to hang on to bitterness and unforgiveness, we saw this in previous passages as well, then he can also go on and go, look, world, look at these Christians. At least they call themselves Christians. But yeah, they're Christians. And look at how they live. They're no different than you. Don't be part of them. And then when he does that, he said, look at yourself, Christian. You act just like the world does. 
You say you believe this or that. You don't really buy this Christianity thing. See, this is what Satan does. This is his scheme. On the first thing, on the first hand, he wants to tempt you to do something. Just do it. It's so easy. You'll feel so much better afterwards. Just cheat a little. Just cuss a little. Just sleep with that person. Just give in to it. And then, if you do it, then he'll come over here. The first thing he'll do, look at what you just did. You say you're one thing, but we both know different, don't we? Look at how easily you gave in to this. I mean, it, you know, you just, I just barely said something to you. And man, he tempts and then he accuses. As a matter of fact, the name Satan is a Hebrew word. It's a generic man. It means accuser or adversary. And it's from a verb that means to obstruct or oppose. Now let's look at Revelation 12.10. Revelation 12.10. Look at the activity of Satan. Revelation 12.10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Listen to this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now this is talking about the activity of Satan being characterized as one who accuses believers before God night and day. And he wants you in a state of despair. And if he can convince you that you aren't really saved, oh, he relishes that. That you would despair over your lack of salvation. That you're forgotten. That you're lost. So number three, don't doubt your salvation. Now, having said that, if you've got a question as to whether or not you're saved, ask yourself what you believe. There was a question that popped up in the Chicago Tribune, and Billy Graham is the one that answered it. The question was, when I try to witness about Christ, people's responses often confuse me, which leads to doubting my own salvation in Jesus Christ. Is this normal? Billy Graham answered. He said, doubts can be debilitating. Uncertainty often throws the doubter off balance. When sincere Christians hear critics attack the Bible, there may be increased temptation to doubt God's word. When confronted with the reality of doubt, people may question, am I really saved? I think this is very common. I think it's very common for, for kids who grew up in church and then go to college to have these, these doubts and struggles. I know I did. Billy Graham goes on. He says, Satan will do everything he can to cause doubt about your salvation in Christ and destroy our witness. And he said this, when we find ourselves doubting what Christ has done for us, it is often because we open our ears and minds to what others say. And he goes back and said, look at, look at Eve. In the very beginning, in the garden, what did Satan do? He sowed seeds of doubt. Is that what God really said? And Satan twisted God's word, brought confusion to Eve. Instead of listening to God, instead of repeating God's command and taking his words of truth to heart, Christians often respond like Eve. 
He said one more thing. Many unbelievers are skilled at twisting God's word and distorting its truth to accommodate the destructive morals and behaviors that they won't give up. Doubt can be an effective tool of Satan. It can be. So what do you do instead? Instead, trust Christ's saving work. Probably one of the very first verses you memorized if you grew up in church. It can be very helpful. It's John 3, 16. It's very straightforward. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, it's what Jesus did that saves you. It's what Jesus did that is keeping you saved. I have been declared righteous, but I very much have the capacity to do great evil. Queen Victoria, uh, she once attended a a service in St. Paul's Cathedral. She listened to a sermon that interested her, and she went back and she talked to the the chaplain uh, of of her court and, and, and said, Can I be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? His answer was this to her. He said, he knew no way that one could be absolutely sure. That incident became so public, it made the court news, came to the notice of a minister in town named John Townsend. He read Queen Victoria's question and the answers she received, and he prayed about it. He wrote a note to the queen and said this, to her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, He said, with trembling hands, but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages. One of those was John 3, 16. He said, I sign myself for your servant, for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. He sent that. He prayed about it. About two weeks later, he, later, he got a, a letter from the queen. She said, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home in which she said, I go to prepare a place for you. When you trust Christ, guess what? There is a place prepared for you. Trust Christ's saving work. Putting all that together, keep Satan from stealing your joy by staying disciplined, choosing forgiveness, and trusting Christ's saving work. Trust what it was he's done for you, because Satan is always seeking to intimidate. Again, it's, it's powerful, and I want to close with this, this scene. If you've, if you've ever followed rugby, and I'm not a big rugby fan, but I was made aware of this team. Their motto is, we fear, uh, we fear our legacy more than our opponent. It's the New Zealand All Blacks. And before the game, they stand in front of their opponents. They stick at their, their tongues and they do this haka, as it's called. It's a, it's a Polynesian kind of way of intimidating. And in June of 2022, they were facing Ireland. That's the team in green. Facing them down. Ireland did something they didn't expect. Before the All Blacks stood up and did this, they took the jersey of a teammate that had died And they laid it in the middle of the field. That was actually before they did the haka. Then after they did their haka, this is what happened. The wife and children walked out 
behind that jersey, and they stared down the All Blacks. And I'm watching this on a video. You can actually watch it online. And it seemed to me in that moment, the All Blacks didn't quite know what to do with this. When they saw the boldness of the wife and the children out on the field to collect that jersey of their fallen father and their husband, and the All Blacks just sort of looked at them. And Ireland proceeded to thump them that day. And in that moment, I, I couldn't help but see a parallel in what it was that Christ had done for us. Because, see, in his death, we not, need not be afraid of any earthly opponent. It's because he died for us, and he defeated sin, and he defeated death. Those things will never be held against us. We will die one earthly death. You'll pass through that thin veil in a moment, and you'll be in eternity with God. See, our joy is not part of our circumstances. It is completely rooted in what it was that Christ has done for us. Satan will try to intimidate us. He'll appear larger than life. And we have to remember that giants he places to intimidate us into giving up before the fight, they've been sidelined. John said in his letter, in 1 John, he said, look, don't believe everything you see and hear. The enemy will lie to you and try to intimidate. Just remember, just understand, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the joy that is available to us all. Lord, as we trust you more and more, as we believe in you more and more, as we cease trying to take matters into our own hands, as we stop looking at our circumstances and the waves around us and keep our eyes fixed on you and discipline ourselves to keep our eyes fixed on you. God, our capacity grows. And Lord, I pray that we would know joy in 2023 far beyond what we've known in 2022 or 2021 or any year before that. Lord, I pray for someone who may not yet have put their trust in you. I pray that today would be the day. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you're in need of prayer this morning, I would be happy to pray with you. Or if you, for whatever reason, like you, you're just not sure. I don't know, God, Chad, if I've truly placed my faith in Christ or not. Please come up and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a wonderful day. I hope to see you back here in the auditorium at 5 p.m. this evening. We'll see you soon.